Good morning, everyone. Uh, please go ahead and find Acts chapter 24 in your Bibles. We have the privilege of opening up God's Word today, and we're looking today at a refusal to repent. Acts 24, 1 through 27. This is about a man who would not repent of his sin and believe in the Lord Jesus, even though he got lots and lots of opportunities to hear the gospel. So if you go ahead and stand with me, I'm going to read God's word. Um, we're back in Acts today, going verse by verse. Uh, Acts is volume two of a history of the church written by Luke, dedicated to Theophilus, friend of God. Uh, since the mid-second century, it's been called the Acts of the Apostles. I think more accurately, it should be the Acts of Jesus Christ through his spirit-empowered witnesses for his sovereign purposes. But that's pretty long, so we're just going to go with, with Acts here. So Acts 24, 1 through 27. This is the word of God. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. <clears throat> he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came bringing alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, though they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul 
in prison. And Lord, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence here. We pray uh, that you would have your way in our hearts, that you would open our eyes, uh, that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So I want to give you a bit of background and catch us up a little bit in Acts. But think with me first about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They record what, what Jesus did and taught. The book of Acts records what Jesus continued to do and teach. It's the story, the continuing story of Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes. Now, we need to make a clarification on that. His work at the cross is finished. We call it the finished work of Christ. His work at the cross in shedding his blood, atoning for sin, is finished. So what is continuing is the continuing uh, gathering of believers, gathering of the redeemed, collecting the elect, and we are privileged to engage in that process as God gives us opportunity to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so... Uh, in your bulletins, you'll notice on the sermon notes, there's some chapter summaries that we're going to uh, keep in there for, for uh, so far in Acts where we've been. And uh, what you'll notice is that a lot of things blend in together in Acts because it's all, it's all aimed at recording what actually happened uh, through the early church. And, and then you get to Acts 28 and it's done and, and Christ is still doing his work in and through his church. It's just not getting recorded in the Bible. The, the, the canon of Scripture is closed. And so the, the book of Acts is, is awesome. It's about Jesus at work. Chapter 1, we saw him calling his witnesses. Chapter 2, indwelling his church. Chapter 3, healing his people. Chapter 4, preaching the gospel. Uh, the, the, they're out going out into the world to preach the gospel. Chapter 5, God is purifying his church. Chapter 6, stretching his people. Seven, scattering his flock so more and more people can hear the gospel. Eight, sending his witnesses. Nine, choosing his instruments. Ten, speaking to many hearts. Eleven, people are repenting of sin. Twelve, people are responding to God. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 13, the, the church is going to the ends of the earth. At, at that point, the known ends of the earth. They're serving his purposes, chapter 14. They're navigating treacherous times, chapter 15. Uh, God is opening hearts to the gospel, chapter 16. Chapter 17, Paul is building gospel bridges, something we need to do. Chapter 18, Jesus encourages his servants. Chapter 19, we see him providing for his people. Chapter 20, uh, you see the church loving Christ's church. And then we get to chapter 21, and the last several chapters, what we've seen is, first, God was orchestrating his plan all the way through. Here is Paul going to Jerusalem. He's meeting with the elders of the church. He's encouraging the church. And while he's there, he realizes that some people have heard some false things about him. And they've been told that he teaches people to go against God's law. And so to preserve truth and unity, he takes uh, the advice of the elders there and goes into the temple with four men who are taking a vow of separation to God, the Nazarite vow of consecration to God, and he goes and does that with them. And while he's there, he gets arrested by the Jews because they're falsely saying, well, he brought you know, Gentiles into the temple courts to profane it on purpose, and he didn't bring Gentiles into those courts. 
You see chapters 22 and 23 where God is now comforting his people and rescuing his people. Paul is dragged before the 70 Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, and he stands up and stands for truth. Very strongly stands for truth. And he is comforted by Jesus himself who says to him, you know, do not fear. You are going to preach the gospel in Rome. You're going to get to Rome. Now, we haven't even got to the shipwreck yet. But basically, God has assured him he's going to be there. In fact, you could call uh, Paul the invincible Christian. In fact, you, if you're a believer, are an invincible Christian until the moment that God has already arranged to call you home or come back for you, whichever comes first. God is rescuing Paul. He is dragged before the Sanhedrin. He's comforted. And Paul is professing faith in Christ and Christ crucified and risen and exalted and returning. And, and he's telling the people, you need to yield to the lordship of Christ. This is his consistent message. And then 40 plus Jews hatch a sinister plot against Paul. They say, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. And they tell the chief priest, bring him, pretend that you're going to talk about his case. We're going to ambush him and kill him on the way. But all through this, and you see this all through the book of Acts. In fact, I hope you see this through your life. That even if, if really bad things are happening, God is working behind the scenes. And he's working in the hearts of, and lives of Christians to conform them to the image of Christ through many, many things. Good and bad things. But but he's been working and he has a sensitive relative situated precisely in a place where he could hear of the plan against Paul's life and tell Paul, who then tells his captors, and here's the amazing rescue that God brings about. Paul it, it tells them he's a Roman citizen. They've got him stretched out to be killed, excuse me, to be beaten to a bloody pulp, and they have him stretched out, and he says, hey, can you beat a Roman citizen legally? And when they realize that, they know they're in big trouble. And now Paul gets, get this, he gets rescued from the Jews by the Romans. And now he's their best friend because they're like, oh, you're a Roman citizen. You're born a Roman citizen. We're going to protect your life. And so this is how God is getting him to Rome. And it's, it's awesome the way you see this unfolding. Well, then Claudius Lysias writes a letter to Felix, who we're looking at today, the man who wouldn't repent. And he tells him all that's happened, and he kind of embellishes the facts a bit to make himself look good. Uh, but he tells him, you oversee the case. His accusers will come and bring the charges. So today in chapter 24, we're, we're seeing this refusal to repent. And, and the idea is this. A refusal to repent is a rejection of Christ. A refusal to repent is a rejection of Christ. Literally, if, if you're refusing to repent let's say you're not a believer and you're like i'm not going to follow christ i'm not going to believe what i'm hearing then you're you're not going to be chased down by a bunch of people that are going to tackle you and you know pin you to the ground and say you got to repent you're in god's hands on that one you've condemned yourself by your unbelief and you're you're in god's hands let's say you're a professing believer let's say say oh yeah i'm a christian i'm a christian but you're living like hell you're living like you're not a believer and and the only thing i'm going to tell you is you're in god's hands at that point and you might have christians fellow christians who love you come alongside and say you know you need to to repent you need to turn from your sins you need to actually live what you're saying you believe but they cannot make you repent only god grants repentance you have to deal with god so a refusal to repent is a rejection of christ 
And, and the thing we see in Paul's life is that Jesus grants him a cheerful defense even if people don't repent. And you can be sure of that as well. We don't save people. We evangelize. We share the gospel. And it's up to God and, and uh, what's going to happen. We're, we can't make it happen. Now, let me set the scene for you. Uh, there's three main players here, Tertullus and, and Paul and Felix. Uh, crooked lawyer. Well, there's a lot of great lawyers, but this is a crooked lawyer, Tertullus, falsely accusing Paul, who's the faithful witness, who gives a cheerful defense to Felix, who is the faithless governor, who totally refuses to repent and believe in Jesus, even though over and over again, he gets to hear the gospel from none other than the apostle Paul. Like, he's got, you know, the A-team preaching the gospel to him. So there's three segments of this passage, verses 1 through 9. First, you have Tertullus's false evidence, false accusations. Uh, verses 10 through 21, Paul's cheerful defense. And then lastly, verses 22 to 27, Felix's refusal to repent. That's what we're going to look through. So let's start in verse 1, Tertullus's false evidence. And you've got a bit of chrono uh, chronology here. You've got some timelines that you can really put together really nicely. It says that five days later, the high priest Ananias travels down from Jerusalem in the Judean foothills and to Caesarea on the coast with some elders. You've got the highest authority uh, in the Jewish nation and some elders at this trial. So you know they're dead set on discrediting Paul. And they bring a hired gun named Tertullus who was a professional attorney. The, the word is rhetor, where we get our word rhetoric. He was trained in rhetoric, and he knew Roman law. He knew proper court procedures, and, and he's there, and he's going to speak for the Jews. Very interesting. You didn't need to have a legal advocate if you were putting charges against someone. Hiring uh, him shows how dead set they were on destroying Paul. Verse 2, Paul is summoned. Tertullus begins accusing him, but not before buttering up Felix. Gives an intro that is heaping with excessive and undeserved praise on Felix. Trying to earn his favor. You know how people do that, trying to get on the good side. And he starts by saying, you brought us so much peace. No, he didn't. He says, oh, you're so most excellent. No, he wasn't. He says, oh, you've done all these reforms. No. And then verse 3, in all ways and in all places, with all gratitude. And he's just going on and on, empty flattery on an evil ruler. This, this man, Felix, did more than any other governor to, to ruin any semblance of peace that existed already. He did suppress the rebellion of an Egyptian prophet who threatened Jerusalem with thousands of followers. Uh, chapter 21 kind of alludes to that. But here was Felix's idea of peace. Hunting down and killing extremist Jewish dagger-wielding freedom fighters, known as Sicarii, uh, and capturing them. And he did this, by the way. He captured one named Eleanor, who was the leader of the dagger men, and crucified most of his followers. This is Felix. Felix was the Roman governor of Judea for about eight years, about A.D. 52 to 59. He had ruled for five when Paul was here before him. Interesting point about him, he didn't come from wealth and status. He didn't come from privilege. He was a freed slave. First time a freed slave had risen to be a governor. Uh, Tacitus uh, says of his leadership, he practiced every kind of cruelty and lust. He wielded royal, royal power with the instincts of a slave. Josephus said he had his soldiers track down and catch Jewish zealots virtually every day, 
and immediately execute them, many by crucifixion. You can go back in, in, in Jewish historian books and you can see the fact about Felix and how wicked he was. His most heinous crime was conspiring to kill uh, the Jewish high priest Jonathan. This guy was a bad, bad man. And Tertullus says to him, we're really thankful for your foresight. Now that can mean uh, a ruler who exercised excellent insight in managing public affairs, which Felix didn't do, but it can also mean the providence of God. And, and so Tertullus is just buttering him up, saying all sorts of things that aren't true about him, try to make him feel good about himself, try to make him like him. And verse four he says, and I beg your kindness, I'm gonna be brief. I'm not gonna say that to you today, okay? I'm not gonna be brief, no. Um, verse five, he begins, here's what he says. This man is a real pest. He's, he's a plague, he's a troublemaker. That troublemaker means plague or pestilence used as a metaphor for a dangerous person. They said, Paul is dangerous. Now, he used to be. Granted, he, he used to be. He wanted to kill Christians. At this point in his life, Paul is, is, is a peaceful man. And they're using the word that you use of a person who's got a deadly disease that infects other people. Uh, this is the wicked man of Psalm 1. This is the mocker of the Proverbs. This is Eli's sons who were troublemakers because they had no regard for God. This is what they're saying about Paul. And they give three false accusations against Paul. First, they say he broke man's laws. He stirs up riots all around the world, among the Jews. Um, secondly, they say he breaks Jewish law, leads them astray, uh, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Nazarene, the first earliest use here of Nazarenes for for Christians, uh, those who followed Jesus of Nazareth, calls them a sect. That was a big put down. That was a uh, derogatory thing. He, he calls them a heresis, where we get our word heresy from. He's accusing them of being insurgents who are not aligned with Judaism, uh, an illegitimate or deviant form of Judaism. So he says all this stuff, and then he says in verse 6, and he tried to profane the temple. He's breaking God's law. That's the third accusation. He's disrespectful to God. Now, Tertullus is saying this to Felix, who has no fear of God. And they said, well, you know, Paul brought Trophimus into the temple courts, and by the way, that's a very serious charge if proven he could be killed for it. But there's no witnesses. The charge doesn't hold water. He didn't do that. And then Tertullus says, and we seized him. Like, we did it. Felix, you should like us, because we did it. It implies that the temple police actually arrests Paul. It doesn't say anything of the mob that was literally carrying him across town. And then you come to no verse 7 in some of your Bibles. Look down at your Bible. If you have an ESV, there's no verse 7. If you have a Bible with a verse 7, there is a, there is a footnote that says many early manuscripts don't have this verse. What does verse 7 say in certain versions? It says this. But the commander, Lysias, came and with the use of much force snatched him from our hands. So he is throwing Lysias under the bus and he's basically saying he needs to give him, he needs to, um, uh, Felix used to hand Paul over to the Sanhedrin so they can kill him basically. And so they're saying all these things. Verse eight, hey, see for yourself. You're gonna see that we're right. Verse nine, the Jews say, yeah, it's all true. It's all piling on here and they're all lying. That's the first thing we see. False accusations against Paul. 
Now look at the second part, uh, verses 10 through 21. Paul's courageous and really cheerful uh, defense. He's happy to give his defense before them. So uh, verse 10, Tertullus uh, finishes, Paul gets to respond, and like Tertullus, he uh, begins to uh, say kind words, but he only says the truth. He only goes so far. Here's what he said. This is the best he could do for Felix. For many years you've led this nation, and I cheerfully make my defense. Verse 11, uh, a little bit of a timeline here now. Twelve days ago, I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Now, he's been in Caesarea for five days, so we've got 17-day span. Now, if you think you've had a lot going on in your life, and you're like, oh, I'm so busy, you wouldn't believe what's happened to me in the last two weeks. Well, here's what happened to Paul in 17 days. Day one, he arrives in Jerusalem, chapter 21. Day two, he visits James, uh, the elders of of the Jerusalem church. Days three through nine observes the seven days of purification with those four men that are doing the Nazarite vow. Day nine, he's arrested. We're still in Acts 21. Day 10, he appears before the Sanhedrin. That's Acts 22. Day 11, there's the plot against Paul that gets uncovered that his nephew hears that he tells him about that saves his life and all that, and that's in chapter 23. Day 12, he's taken to Caesarea. Days 13 through 17, he's awaiting trial in Caesarea. Day 17, Felix. That's a lot going on in, in 17 days. And he is, he is being uh, falsely accused. He is being harassed. He is, uh, he is uh, having to be answering for charges that weren't true. Okay, now, you get to verse 12, he says this. I did not dispute with anybody or stir up any crowds, either in the temple, the synagogues, or the city. I didn't do any of this. And verse 13, they can't prove these lies. Uh, Let me tell you the truth. Verse 14, here's the truth according to the way, which they call a sect. It's the way. Early Christians called themselves the way because Jesus is the way to life, the way of salvation. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul is saying, I'm part of this way, and I worship the God of our fathers. I believe everything in the law and the prophets. He says in verse 15, I have a hope in God, just like these men do too. The same hope in God as all the Jews of a Messiah and a resurrection, except the Sadducees, of course. The heart of this belief is a coming Messiah, uh, a descendant of David, uh, an end-time deliverer for Israel, and it includes a belief in the resurrection of the dead. It's like Daniel 12 too. So Paul says, there is a resurrection. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now Jesus spoke of this general resurrection, John chapter 5. Paul spoke of it in 1 Corinthians 15. Says that all people must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now in 16, Paul says, um, look, I always work very hard to have a clear conscience before God and man. He's telling them, everything you said is false. Everything that you're hearing is false. Um, and, and then he says in verse 17, after several years, I came to bring gifts for the poor of my nation, basically. Uh, his most recent visit was five years earlier. Visited Jerusalem church, uh, following the Corinthian ministry prior to the trip to Ephesus. Uh, prior to that, he came to Jerusalem for the council in AD 49. That's in Acts 15. But here you have the only reference to the collection of money that Paul gathered for the needy Christians, uh, the needy Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. 
And it's the second time he's brought relief to the city, by the way. First time was 12 years earlier. Came to Jerusalem from the church in Antioch. And at that time, James and Peter and John said, continue to remember the poor, which is what Paul kept doing. He was bringing this, and interestingly, his gift was motivated by, by a desire to help those in need. Now, at Grace Church, I think a lot of people help each other when they're in need. We also have a thing called the Caring Fund, where we pool some money together for some emergency needs amongst people in the body. But for example, if God puts on your heart to help someone, you should go help them. You shouldn't say, well, we have a caring fund. Let that take care of it. If God puts it on your heart, go do it. The best help I give people is when I don't get a tax deduction. But anyway, he's bringing these. He's telling them, I, I brought all this, this, this care for the church, and I was bringing offerings. I was going to present offerings. Very distinct from giving gifts to the poor. This was sacrificial offerings. This was the idea of Paul paying expenses for the four men giving the Nazarite vow. He would have bought them animals and bread and grain as sacrificial offerings in fulfillment of that vow. So verse 18, he says, they found me purified in the temple. He'd gone through this seven-day purification. I'm not causing any ruckus, he's saying. And then he says, look, there are some Jews from Asia that, verses 19 and 20, he's telling them, let them come and tell tell you what I did wrong. Now, Roman law was very strong that if you made an accusation against someone and you abandoned your charges, you're going to be in big trouble. They're somewhat abandoning their charges. The accusers are not there. And he says in verse 21, I cried out while among them this line. I'm here for the resurrection of the dead. That's why I'm on trial. And and there is the attitude of a faithful witness. He's not taking it personally. He says, bring it. I'm standing for Jesus in the gospel. They, cru- they, they crucified Jesus, they treated him this way, they're going to treat me badly, and, and he's not having a martyr mentality, he's having a victor mentality, an eternal perspective that we ought to have as well. Because Paul was not on his way to Rome to buy souvenirs. Paul was, there to, was going there to preach the gospel. Now let's move on to Felix's uh, rather curious refusal to repent. Uh, verses 22 to 27. Let's talk about Felix for a minute. Felix was married three times. First wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. Um, Drusilla was his third wife, the youngest of Herod Agrippa I's three daughters. Uh, This is the Herod that died suddenly uh, in Caesarea while letting people worship him as God. You see that in Acts 12. Drusilla was six years old when her father died in about A.D. 44. After that, her brother Agrippa II gave her in marriage to the king of Amisa in Syria. But in her mid-teens, Felix saw her and wanted her, so with the help of a magician, he persuaded her to leave her husband and marry him. And she was like 14, 15 years old at the time. Now, at the point where we're at right now, just to give you some perspective, she was 19 or 20 years old. She had a son at one point, and they named him Agrippa. He died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. But Felix had, Felix and his wife had a very accurate knowledge of Christianity. And they were well acquainted with it. It's not uncommon. Uh, First of all, there were thousands upon thousands of people that had become believers in Jerusalem, uh, many Christian communities in Caesarea. So it's not surprising that they would know about uh, followers of Christ. But Felix says this He says, You know what? I'm going to call a timeout on this. I'm going to press pause. We're not going to continue this case until Lysias, the tribune, comes down. Then I'll decide your case. 
kind of a wise move for Felix. It helped him. Um, if he continued the case, the Jews are going to be really mad. If he, if he lets them bring him, bring Paul back uh, to uh, Jerusalem, they're going to kill him. And so either way, he knows he's going to be in trouble. A Roman citizen's going to get killed, or the Jews are going to be mad at him. So he says, we're going to just have halftime or something right now. Now, verse 23 tells him, keep Paul in custody, but let his friends come to him. Because they're not giving him room and board. If you were under uh, Roman custody, your friends had to come and help meet your needs. And so his friends were expected to come and do that. Now, verse 24 is really the heart of what's going on here. Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla, who's Jewish, and sends for Paul and hears him talk about faith in Christ Jesus. He's clearly explaining why Jesus had to suffer and die and rise from the dead. And, and Paul is telling them, you need to believe in Jesus. And he is talking about, verse 25, righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Their sandwich between righteousness and the coming judgment is a topic of self-control. Uh, something the Spirit produces in the life of a believer. Uh, Paul wants to help Felix and Drusilla see their guilt before God, know that they need uh, forgiveness through faith in Christ. Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Paul's making it very clear. Following Christ has ethical implications. This would have been very, very uncomfortable for Felix and Drusilla. And, he, and Paul is not one to you know, mince words. He's very pointed about it and he's practical about it and he says this is how the gospel can change your life and Felix can't handle it Felix kind of loses it he gets very afraid Felix is a fraidy cat and and he says go away for now when I come and have some time I'll come back I'll have you come back and talk uh, I, I, he gets agitated he's alarmed he's afraid and and they need to hear these things Felix and his wife needed to hear these things, but he is afraid and decides, I've had enough for now. You know, speaking of the coming judgment is not very popular among Christians today. It was for Paul, but not for us. See, we're afraid to look extreme. We're afraid to turn people off. We're afraid for them not to like us or to get angry at us. But here is Paul responding uh, to these charges and then speaking to this wicked ruler and his wife, and, and regularly telling them about impending accountability before God. He's not afraid to do that. He was less concerned about how they felt about him. He was overcome by a responsibility to clearly tell people the truth. But Felix was way different. Verse 26 tells us he was hoping that Paul would bribe him. That's why he wanted to come talk to Paul. So in a sense, Felix is saying, I can handle hearing about Jesus as long as Paul gives me some money. Felix doesn't even recognize his own lack of self-control with regard to his lust for money. So he invites Paul over, not to discuss his soul, but to give Paul an opportunity to give him a bribe. And in those days, taking a bribe, if you're a public official, was illegal. But it didn't, it didn't stop Felix from doing that. And so Paul remains in custody, verse 27, for two full years. And he's in, he's in the, uh, the palace of Herod. He's probably chained next to, a, to the centurion or a soldier. And he's waiting for his trial to resume. And during that time, many times he has the opportunity to speak to 
Felix and Drusilla about Jesus on an ongoing basis. It's pretty awesome what, what God allowed him to, to do, isn't it? Isn't it awesome? Think about how God orchestrated all that. What happens with Felix? Um, he gets succeeded by Portius Festus. There's a name. He's, Felix was fired by, by Nero in AD 59 because he mishandled an uprising between Jews and Greeks in the city of Caesarea. But to do the Jews a favor, he leaves Paul in prison. Again, that precarious position he's in. Uh, if he does one thing, it's going to mess things up for him. If he does another thing, it's going to mess things up. So the wisest decision for him, at least, is to postpone the trial. So, that's a lot of stuff, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that a lot? Um, here's Paul. He's been accused uh, by a politically shrewd lawyer uh, who was gifted communicator, and he's facing this powerful career politician in Felix who is twisting justice to help himself. And Paul remains a faithful witness, cheerful even. He speaks of faith in Christ. He speaks of God's righteousness, of self-control that the Spirit brings, and of the last judgment. And he tells them, if you believe these things, you're going to have a clear conscience, just like me. But Felix displays this ongoing, prideful, you know, high-handed, outright refusal to repent. And there is judgment coming. Paul had told him there is judgment coming, that God is going to punish sin. But some people harden their hearts beyond repentance. And only God knows. And we got That's a mystery we have to embrace and acknowledge, that tension. But God is just. And Paul couldn't see inside Felix's heart. We can't, you can't see inside of people's souls. And so Paul did what every Christian must do. Lovingly tell the truth. Tertullus Nothing but pride, he told lies, he told, told lies about Felix and Paul. He told, you know, positive lies about Felix and negative lies about Paul, but they were all lies from the father of lies. Paul, clear conscience, cleansed by Christ, free forgiveness, grace, mercy. Felix, empty soul, <laughs> filled with greed, wanted money, um, didn't want Jesus, and thought he could get whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it, because he was blinded by Satan. He was unable to see the truth right in front of his very eyes. Unable to receive it, did not have faith. And you might say, wow, that is failed evangelism. Paul failed in evangelism. You might, you might be tempted to say that. And I would just say, no way in the world. That is not failed evangelism. That is successful evangelism. Why? Because Paul did what he was called to do as a witness for Christ. He's not called to save people. He's just called to, give, to be the witness what it definitely is not is a failure to evangelize. That's more our problem. We don't even, we don't even give the message sometimes. But we've got to remember this. You're giving the message. Only God opens hearts. You don't have to save people. You don't have to, like, you know, pummel them as, as often as you can and just say, you've got to believe. You know, we probably, some of us have tried. I've tried to do this with people before, where early on as a believer, I just wanted to grab everyone I knew and just say, you know, shake them and say, you've got to believe in Jesus right now. I had, I had one person say to me once, how long did it take you before you believe the gospel, I said, well, I, I, listen, I heard it for about a year and a half, and I pushed it away for about a year and a half. They're like, so why are you trying to get me to believe right this second? <laughs> but why would a person exposed to the gospel over and over again refuse it? Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. We all know people like this. And only by the grace of God, if you're a believer today, only by the grace of God did you believe. 
There are some who hear the gospel and it does no, does no benefit to them because it's not united with faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Some people hear the word of Christ and they say, we don't want that. They don't believe it. And they, they condemn themselves. We evangelize, we cannot save. Only Jesus saves. Uh, Acts 4.12. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Christ. God is holy. We say this a lot, don't we? God is holy. And man is sinful. And so we have this this total depravity, this radical depravity that necessitates a radical rescue, and the radical rescue was effected at the cross, and Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's the only way out of sin and into a relationship with God. I love Martin Luther's conversion story. He was almost struck by lightning. He vowed to be a monk. He couldn't find peace with God. He tried every way the church at that time had taught him, uh, good works, praying to the saints, confession, absolution, mysticism. And then he was appointed to the university to study and teach Bible. God is so amazing. And here's Luther in his own words. He says, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. So he got it. Now, some people get that and walk away because they love their sin more. But here's what Luther said. Although I was an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17. He says, I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. He says, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. By, by God's grace, he, he was led to the one place where he would find help, the word of God, which is powerful. The Bible tells us the soul that sins must, must die. It's very clear about it. But here's the awesome news. God took your sins and put them on Jesus at the cross and punished those sins in his son on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness because by his wounds, by Christ's wounds, we are healed. So God must punish sin. His holy nature insists upon it and he did so at the cross in Christ. And we believe it was for us. The question for you today is, do you believe it was for you? Have you staked your life upon that? Have you turned from your sins in faith to, and repented and believed in Jesus? The Bible makes it very clear. Every time you see a gospel presentation in the Bible, it might say repent, and it might say believe, it might say believe and repent. Paul said, I, taught, I spoke of them of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. It, the two go hand in hand. 
But here's what's happening. Mankind is fighting against God with all his might, a God they cannot see but know exists, evidenced in creation and their conscience. Mankind is fighting with all their might against God, like a, a blade of grass going up against you know, Mount Everest, like a, like a worn, spent boxer refusing to admit he's defeated. And the Bible is very um, chock full of examples of people who were given opportunity to repent that refused it. I'll just give you a couple. Isaiah 22. Uh, foreign nations suddenly put uh, the nation of Israel under siege. The prophets had foretold that it would happen. The Jews weren't ready for the siege. They tried to defend themselves. They built ditches around their city. They fortified the city with walls. They made whatever preparations they could. Some ran away in fear, uh, but it, through it all, they refused to turn to God. They, they they made allies with foreign nations. They refused to own their own guilt. Uh, they, they didn't confess their sins. And if they would have confessed their sins, if they would have humbled themselves before God, instead of eating and drinking and quoting worldly proverbs like, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, which is right there in, in that chapter, they hardened their hearts in contempt for God. And as a result, God let them do what they wanted to do. Jeremiah 5. Verse 3, O Lord, you do, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. And Isaiah prophesied 50 years, the century before Jeremiah. And the, and the, and the people didn't take it seriously. Here, it's a different situation, but uh, once again, um, God wanted to spare and bless the people if they repented, and, and he is patient. You see it in Amos and Zephaniah and Zechariah and all around, and, and even, even Jesus himself called for repentance. And even Rome, uh, Revelation 2.21, he, he even uh, calls for repentance from the false prophetess Jezebel. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Because God is so gracious and kind and merciful, but... Some refuse to repent. There are people that you will share the gospel with. And you'll ask them, do you understand what I just said to you? And they'll say yes. And then they say, I don't want Jesus. So now they have made a conscience decision. And why do they respond that way? It's because they love their sin more than Jesus. They're not ready to give up their sinful ways. Many of us were like that. And only by the sheer grace and mercy of God were we rescued. Paul said, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, Romans 2.5, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And that day is fast approaching. So don't, don't pass up, don't squander any gospel message you hear. <laughs> don't reject the gospel. Um, the, the fact that the gospel exists is testimony to the greatness and the mercy and, and grace of God in sending Christ who died as a substitute in our place, who endured all the wrath of God as punishment for our sin. But if we reject Christ, then the sin is on us. What is God doing right now? He is sending witnesses. He is sending ambassadors. He's sending us to proclaim his beautiful truth. In fact, he even says, our feet are beautiful when we do it. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And I, I know that someone's going to hear this and say, oh no, when I got saved, I don't remember feeling a huge burden of sin. 
I don't know, maybe I'm not saved. Someone with a tender conscience is going to say, I don't remember loathing my sin, as Spurgeon puts it. I don't remember this. I don't know if I've truly been convicted of my sin. I don't know. Maybe I'm not really saved. And if that's you today, let me just say, worrying about whether you're saved is a sign of being saved. The people we're worried about are the people who aren't worried about their sin. There come a day when Jesus will we'll be uh, meeting with some people who say to him, we did all these things for you, Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. I never knew you. That's why I think Paul built in a heart check in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. For every professing believer, anyone who says, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, then, then examine yourselves, Paul said, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? Back in 1668, Thomas Watson wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And he says repentance comes partly by the word of God. The word preached is the engine God uses to effect repentance. It's compared to a hammer and a fire in scripture. The one to break, the other to melt the heart. And then he says it also comes by the spirit that those who preach the gospel are merely pipes and organs. It is the Holy Spirit breathing in them that makes their words effective. The Spirit in the word illuminates and converts. But isn't it interesting that some get saved after hearing the word and some do not? Because some refuse to repent and believe. We're gonna come to the Lord's table in a few moments. I wanna ask you a question. It's a heart level question. But it's this, are you refusing to repent? Are you refusing to repent? Um, have you had many, many opportunities to hear the word of God, but you've squandered them? Or are you a quick learner? Um, you're learning the lessons God is putting in your way. Or, or is there something that keeps coming back into your life, a, a hardship, a difficulty, that might be teaching you a lesson that you need to learn and you keep rejecting it? Seize the opportunities God puts in your path. And one more question for you. Do you know anyone that's refusing to repent? Many opportunities to hear the word, but they've squandered them. Then tell them the truth lovingly. And don't rest until you tell them. Lovingly, kindly, patiently, clearly, and firmly tell them the danger their soul is in. Tell them of the love of God in Christ. Seize that opportunity. Like Paul said in Acts 20, 21, I testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. On a human level, all we can see and observe is what comes out in the life. On our level, it's do we have a humble heart before God or an arrogant heart before God? Um, the pattern we see in Scripture is that unbelievers who refuse to repent are to be treated lovingly and patiently and mercifully and faithfully preach the gospel to them in hope that God would grant them repentance. In scripture we see that professing believers that refuse to repent are to be treated in the exact same way with this addition. Lovingly dismissed from fellowship if they persist in hardness of heart, which is the most loving thing to do because as we see in scripture, it, leads, it can lead to repentance. Never to be done in a harsh or demeaning way, always in love. Because everyone is made in the image of God, we are to treat everyone with love and respect and honor uh, but like Paul, he could say, I live before God and man with a clear conscience. 
That's what we want. We want to come to this table today with a clear conscience before God and man. And that does necessitate professing believers to just walk in ongoing repentance. Lord, thank you that even though Paul had been a murderer and a violent oppressor of the church, he found mercy. He acted ignorantly in unbelief, but you showered him with love and grace and mercy and you opened his heart to the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for so many of us that you've done that in our life. We, we say love so amazing, so divine, uh, demands my soul, my life, my all. We've been bought with a price. We want to glorify you in our body. And so we thank you and we praise you. Thank you for the gift of repentance. We pray in Christ's name, amen.